you would, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. Uh, and as you're turning there, I want to just uh, welcome you if you're a visitor here today. Welcome you if you're back after a long uh, time being out. I'm glad that you're in this room. We've prayed for you if you're in this room. And if you are a guest here today and you haven't given us your information, we'd love for you to fill out a little card that's in the seat back in front of you. We promise to, to contact you in a respectful way. We'd love to know that you're here. Um, as I get into this scripture, I want you to know the songs that we just sang all are just in alignment with what we're going to talk about today. All of them are kind of setting up what we're about to see in God's Word. Um, that, that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, such strong, but also extraordinary words because we don't really use those words very much. So I want to kind of recount a couple things that we just sang about our God. That he's not only a fortress to us, but if we would in our own strength put our confidence, then all of our striving is going to end up losing. So what we began by singing today. That God's will for us is that his truth would triumph through us as his people. That's what he desires. Now we just sang those things. We're going to see some things in God's Word that really line up to uh, what we just sang. That we still have this ancient foe who would threaten to undo us, who would threaten to come after us. But God wills for His truth to triumph through us. So let's pray that as we read God's Word. And we're going to start back up in chapter 2. So the last verse of chapter 2, because honestly, I didn't spend near enough time talking about it last week. Kind of ran out of time. So we're going to go from chapter 2, verse 25, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 7. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. For when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we open this uh, portion of your word today, my hope is that those who have no awareness of this great enemy who's seeking to steal and kill and destroy while you're seeking to give us life eternal, I pray that our awareness would just wake up, that we would see the dangers around us that we'd see the ways that we've already heard these lies that we'll see here. Father, I pray that you'd make us 
your people, more like you in every way, cautious and bold with confidence that your truth will ultimately triumph. And I pray this all for the sake of your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to begin with a question, and the question is this. What is wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? Now, whether or not we know that we have an answer to that question, most of us have an answer to that question. Every politician has an answer to that question. Every journalist has an answer to that question. Every system has an answer to that question. Every protest that's ever happened has an answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? And if you were to ask today in this room, what's wrong with our city? Well, maybe you could fill a page with a list of things that are wrong with the city of Jackson. But if I were to ask you, what are, what, not just what's wrong with the world, but what's the potential solution, both for the world or for our city? All of the symptoms might look similar. The diagnosis would look very different, and all the solutions would look different. And I want us, before we get into the next three weeks of God's Word together, I want us to consider that this is the foundation of that answer in God's Word. What is wrong with the world? We're going to answer that over the next few weeks. And my hope for us is that as we walk away from God's Word every week, that we would not only have a clearer view of the symptoms of what's wrong, We'd also be able to see the diagnosis that God would put on the world and the solution that he offers the world through Jesus Christ. There's a story that back in the 1900s, early 1900s in London, a newspaper, the Times, sent out this inquiry to all famous authors asking this question, what's wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton, uh, who is an author and thinker, he responded simply, wrote back to the newspaper, he said, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. So I wonder today, what would be our answer, even to ask, what do the scriptures say is wrong with the world? And the simplest answer to that is that the free will of these two beings, both angels and humans, have led to every evil that we've ever experienced in the world. Every bit of it. Now, many parts of the world would be really okay with the idea that there's some kind of epic spiritual conflict going on, like that that it's all right. If you go to Africa or to the Middle East, that there's like some type of spiritual warfare happening. Lots of people are okay with this. It's an idea that doesn't repulse them or turn them off. But for some reason, we in our culture have a much more naturalistic understanding of what's happening around us. So a lot of times our primary response to that question is, well, people become evil because of the setting that they're in or because of the trauma that's happened to them. And maybe some of those things are true. But we ask the question today, how did it happen that evil arrived on the scene? And if we make too little or too much of this spiritual epic battle that's going on, there's some dangers that could happen. C.S. Lewis says it like this at the beginning of, of in the preface of the screw tape letters. He says, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In other words, if you don't think they exist or you think that's all that's ever happening in the world, you, you will have fallen into that scheme. So today I want us to have a good understanding of what is going on around us. So the theme for this passage today is this. Our great enemy is seeking to diminish God's provision for us, sin's consequences towards us, and God's authority over us and through us. Say that again. Our great enemy, Satan, is seeking to diminish God's provision for us and sin's consequences for us and God's authority both over us and through us. And so there's a few ways that this comes out that we're going to see in just a moment. That there's, he's suggesting to us all the, th- all the time that there's something good that you don't have. There's something good that God's withheld from you. There's nothing bad that's ever going to come of it. And ultimately, there's something more that you need to have to really be like God. And so this story takes place in a, in a setting of Eden. And I want to start there and just ask the question, what was their setting like? Well, it tells us in the end of chapter 2 that the man and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. So obviously it's a very comfortable place. This garden is made by God himself. He has made perfect provision. He said every single tree except for one, you can take it and eat from it. He's given them everything they would need for their physical demands. I can imagine that it's a beautiful place, right? Just a gorgeous place. If God has set it up and made it into a garden, I'm sure he did it very well. Better than any garden you've ever been in. And then there's this perfect beauty that I also can imagine in Adam and Eve. The first of mankind. God shaping him and her by his hands and breathing breathing breath into their nostrils. Can you imagine how gorgeous they were? I mean, just stunning human beings. There they are. Perfect union, not only with God, him walking with them, and perfect union with one another. There's no shame. There's nothing dividing them. And in this place where everything is good, something else is introduced. What in the world is going on? There's a new character. God and three persons have existed, and they talk together and say, hey, let's make man and woman in our image. Then you got Adam and Eve, and now there's a new actor that steps onto the stage. What's this? This serpent can also talk. God's great enemy. Look at 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So first, there's something going on here that immediately feels ominous. There's somebody else in the garden. He's crafty or cunning. Now, this might not have had a negative connotation for them, but it did for uh, it does for us as we watch it. We're like, okay, wait, what's going to happen? It's like the first time the villain shows up, and you're like, I'm not sure about him. Not everything's revealed about him yet, right? But you know, something isn't. It's not yet known what this person is like. He's a beast. This only matters in the following statement that he was made by God. He's not some other thing that existed equal with God. He was shaped by God as a beast of the field. And we learn later in Revelation that this ancient serpent is God's great enemy. Revelation 12, 9, if you want to go look that up later. He's an adversary. He's an accuser of the brethren. He's constantly bringing a charge both against us and against all things ordered. 
1 Corinthians describes his tactics like this when he says in chapter 11, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will also be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he describes what Satan's about to do that we're going to witness. He deceived her by his cunning. His schemes are going to be revealed here. And, and one of the verses I believe that we just put up in that song is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God so that why? So that you can stand against the devil's schemes. So he exists. He's God's enemy. But what are his schemes? And I'm going to point out three things that I can see here. Now, there's a lot more than this, okay? There's a lot of things that are happening in the nuance of what he's saying. Honestly, at first I had like five or six things that I was going to point out. But now I'm just going to go with three, okay? Just three. What's he doing? The first thing he does in all of these places is he's twisting God's word and accusing God's character and all of it. That's the theme throughout all of these three things. He's taking God's word and making it something different than what God had said. He's using them to say more or less than what God has said. He's going to add to make you feel legalistic or take away things to make you licentious. He's going to say, hey, you've got to do more than this or less than this. Either way, he's taking God's word and twisting it. So let's look at some of God's commands to them. The first thing he says is, did he really say this? He's going to suggest that there's more to what God has prohibited than what God has actually prohibited. What did God say? What did he say in chapter one? He blesses them and then he gives them an obligation. Isn't that interesting that his blessing comes through an obligation? Look at this. It's going to be on the screen from chapter one. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, my image in you is going to give you a kind of authority so that you can have dominion over all these places. I've already made you like me in creation. I want you to take this image bearing, and, and it comes with a great blessing, but it also comes with obligation. And then he gives them a prohibition in chapter 2. There's something they're not supposed to do. Look at this. It's going to be on the screen. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. They're referencing the obligation. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So they have obligation and prohibition, a blessing that's included with the command. And then right here in this prohibition, he's saying, you can eat from every single tree. It starts with generosity in God's provision. He's saying, you have all of this. Just don't do this. So his first question, Satan's first question, presents this scheme. He says this. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In other words, he's making the little thing that they can't have look like all the things. He diminishes God's provision and he exalts God's prohibition. He's saying, hey, you can't have anything. He makes God's demand of them seem unreasonable. He's questioning God's word in order to get them to belittle God's provisions for them. He increases the prohibition. He's saying, you can't have any of these trees. Doesn't that seem unreasonable of God? He suggests that in, did God actually say this? 
And I, I would imagine that it was something uh, more like, uh, let's say your kids have a friend over, right? And you say, hey, kids, we can't do this today. The guest walks out and he says, did your dad actually say we can't do this? He knows it. But there's something in there that's an accusation. Saying there's something good that God's withholding from you. Can you believe that he would do that to you? He makes little of God's provision and very much of prohibitions. And he's saying God's provision for you is insufficient. How are you supposed to survive if you don't have all those foods to eat? How are you supposed to make it? Look at what God's prohibiting. He takes God's prohibition and command, and what he said no to, he seems like it's so much better than it actually is when really God has only made this small limitation. And here's what I want you to know. Satan's always trying to make more out of what we don't have and less out of what we do. He's trying to make God's command seem unreasonable, like something that's good is being withheld from you. He's always scheming in this way. Look at Eve's response. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Uh Uh-oh. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Something was lost in translation here, okay? Because God's command was, don't eat it. This would be like going up on a, uh, on a mountain with your kid and saying, hey, don't fall off. Actually, don't get close to the edge, okay, kids? Don't get close. Somewhere between God and Adam and Eve to Satan, something's been added to it. And she also is a little confused about God, what God has said about it, or at least she presents it to there. Satan's second lie says this. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Here's the second scheme of our great enemy. There's nothing bad that's going to come of this. Nothing. Satan's primary way in the world, I, I see it over and over, is he diminishes God's judgment. He says, You're not going to be found out. There's not going to be a consequence. Nothing bad is going to happen. In other words, God's judgments are actually escapable. You you can avoid God's judgment. You can avoid that. You're not surely going to die. There's not really going to be any consequences for your sin. There's so much deception around this scheme of the devil today. There's a diminished view of God's judgment. And here's what happens. Now, look. Most of us feel much more comfortable with the happy guy in the sky, right? Like it just makes us feel a lot more warm and, and comfortable with the idea that God never judges. Like he, does, he has no consequences for sin. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that that leads to. Complete indifference about God. It does. It leads to indifference about what he's done and who he is and what his judgment would be. It also leads to indifference about his provision for us through Christ. Look, if you do not believe that God's judgment belongs over you, you will not receive that Christ has died for you. His mercies will not be sweet for you if you do not believe that you deserved his judgment. It will remove everything about the gift of the gospel. We'll not only be indifferent to God, but we'll be indifferent to his gospel if we believe this lie of Satan. Nothing bad's ever going to happen. There's going to be no consequences. 
Charles Simeon, a Methodist preacher who would travel around from church to church, he said it this way. It's evident that all the indifference of men about the gospel must be traced to this one source. Their believing of Satan's lie and preference to the truth of God. And if ever the gospel is to have a saving influence on our hearts, we must begin by rejecting this suggestion of the devil and by believing that all the threatenings of God against sin and sinners shall assuredly be accomplished. So God had said, if you have the fruit, you're going to die. Satan said, you're not going to die. And most of us would say in this room, we believe in a God, right? Like most of us are not at least, or at least agnostic. We believe that there's a God. And I want to ask this question before I move on. What difference does it make that we believe in God between us and the atheist down the street? What difference does it make? Practical difference. And as unpopular as it is, We cannot escape this one reality about God's judgment. We cannot avoid it. We cannot ignore it. Otherwise, we will continue to be as indifferent to God and the gospel and his provision as any atheist is to God, the gospel, and provision. The only way that this gospel is of value to us is that we see, oh my goodness, I deserve death. I'm going to get death in place of life. And so seconds lie His second lie is, you know what? The wages of sin really isn't death. And the more we dismiss the seriousness of sin, the less we'll value what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, what he accomplished on the the cross. So Satan's tactic is not only to make sin look harmless, but to make God's gift of mercy look meaningless. So the gradual road, anything will do with this. You just become indifferent to things. Uh, Lewis, with these two um, demons that are having a conversation in the screw tape letters, I love this book. He says it this way, it doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I just want to highlight one of the words, phrases from that. Away from the light, out into the nothing. Away from the light, out into the nothing. There's a way in which Satan would call our senses and just numb us to see There's a great weight to sin, a great weight. So what's the application? (laughs) Satan is really good at hiding the hook. He's an expert at it. He's really, really good at saying, there's not going to be a consequence for this. No one's going to see. No one's going to know. So he diminishes God's provision. He diminishes God's judgment. And then he makes a suggestion in verse 5 that's really interesting. He says this. Look, it'll be on the screen. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, there's something God-like that's being withheld from you that you should seek to be. There's something more that you could be that you're not yet. And if you take this, 
It's not only to be desired. This will lead you to good things. There's something more that you can have. God's goodness, yes, it's questionable. He might be even threatened by you becoming like him. It's not the bad thing that's going to happen to you. It's actually something good that's going to come from this sin. It's something that's going to make you better. It's going to make you more like God. It's going to make you feel more freedom and authority. And it diminishes God's authority in two different ways. First, he's saying you could possibly be like God. Okay. Now, these people have walked with God and talked with God, and they're in the garden with him. How deluded do you have to be to say, I could possibly be like him? Maybe I could be like him. But this is the introduction of idolatry. Every idol is suggesting, no, you can have the thing without God being in authority. Saying you can have what you want and God doesn't have to be in authority over you. The second part of this is that he's diminishing the authority that's already been given to them. Listen, when he says you could be like God, they should have said, we already are like him. We've been made in his image. We're the only part of creation that actually resembles God, not only in his likeness, but in his task. He's given us authority over all these things. He's called us to exercise his dominion over all these things. And in this place, Satan's going, yeah, but, but there's something more that you could be like. There's something more. And God's actually already made them like him. So God's authority is diminished. Their own authority is diminished. There's something that's already theirs, and he's suggesting you actually don't have that. God's already given it to them. They're like him. And he's saying, no, you're not like like God. You need to reach for it. You need to grasp for it. You can be like God. I just want to say this before I move forward. There's a similar way that Satan works today. He's working today to make you feel like his command over your life is way too much. That his provision for your life is way too little. Does he really care what you do? I mean, does he really care who we sleep with, who we don't? He's presenting us always, Satan, the enemy, is presenting us with this idea that God has is withholding good things from you. There's things that you don't yet have that if you sin, you're going to have them. And you can have them without God as an authority in your life. You can have them. You can do these things. It doesn't matter. He's diminishing God's provision and protection. He's diminishing God's judgment. And he's diminishing what God's already given you. Now, in his temptation, there's generalizations about it here. Like, I'm just saying, hey, generally, it looks like this is how he's working, right? But there's specific ways that he already sees that resonate with you, ways that you feel discontent, and he's whispering specific ways. In in this book, The Fight, by John White, he uses this illustration of temptation, and he says it's like a piano. If you open up a piano, and you pick a note, and you start singing that note, one of, the, one of the threads on that piano is going to start resonating with your voice. The same note. You might not have perfect pitch, but if you, is that true, Tyler? You sing into it, the song? <laughs> yeah. I read it somewhere. <laughs> Should have tested it out. 
You open the top of the piano, you begin singing a note, one of those strings is going to resonate. And in the same way, Satan knows particularly the things that will resonate with you. He knows. Now, generally, he's saying, God's not been good enough. He's withholding these things. But there's specific things that he's saying. If you do this, it's not going to cost you anything, and it's going to get you where you want to be without God there to tell you how to do it. There's ways he's doing that right now. Specific to you. So how does she respond? Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it's going to be on the screen, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So what is in, what's this, the fall? Right? That's what everyone's heading says on your Bible. The fall. Dun, dun, dun. What is it? Well, she sees that everything Satan says is quite reasonable to her. Verse 6. Physically, you know what? I can see that this could meet a provision that we have. This, this actually might be good for food. This could add to our menu every week. Put some variety in things. You know? We've got all the other trees, but maybe this would be good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. In other words, it was pleasurable. Seems good to me. Looks like a good choice. Everything in that moment made the fruit look delightful. And it seemed plausible, right? Well, if we could potentially know all the things that God would have to tell us, then we wouldn't have to be walking around here and asking for all of his advice all the time. We could know everything. Seems plausible. Seems like a good thing. What could possibly be wrong with knowing and wisdom and knowledge? That seems like a good thing. It's a delight. It's desired. That's desired. I like that. I want that. Okay. So she takes it. She gives it to her husband. And in that moment, they recognize their nakedness. Both of them exposed and ashamed, looking every time from that point on Every child born after them would be in their image in Genesis 9. That the generations that came later were being made in Adam's image. And what was wrong with Adam's image? Well, all of us have this, this predisposition to go with the lie. We all have that predisposition to say, yeah, it seems true, seems plausible, seems pleasant, seems good. And in that Something entered into the world, not just their shame, not just the loss of innocence. Death entered the world, both temporary death in the physical body, spiritual death, eternal death entered into this space. Temporary death, at one day, the physical ground that had shaped them, they would return to that ground. Spiritually, this separation and hiding begins from this place, and it continues throughout all of the history of God's Word that there would be this dynamic between us and God where we're fearful of Him in a shameful way where we try to hide ourselves from Him. We're like a bird before a man. We run and flee. Spiritual death and then eternal death enters in. It's heavy, right? That one day that it's not just annihilation, the Scriptures would say that there's like eternal death. That's heavy. So what does this mean? It means a few things. I want to ask this question first. How have I believed the lie? I'm asking that question for myself today too. 
how have I believed the lie? That God's provision wasn't good enough? That his judgment was escapable? He wasn't going to do anything. How have I believed this? Lots of ways that we probably have believed it. I want to give you this as a promise from 1 Corinthians 15, 22. All of us resemble Adam, okay, in this. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says this, For as in Adam all die, also in Christ shall all be made alive. <laughs> in all of our similarities with Adam, we're doomed to the same fate. Empty promises that fall like a thud on the ground. In Christ, our true light and life, we are made alive. So how do we navigate this world of lies? How should we? Well, I want you to know that Jesus was tempted. What makes him able to make us alive is that he was perfect in every way. In fact, he was tempted in every way. That means that there's no temptation you've ever experienced where Jesus was unfamiliar with it, okay? He knew what it was like to hear these lies. In fact, we get the story of it. Look at Hebrews 4, 15. It says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, he's God too, okay? So it's a little different when he experiences temptation, but we get a visual representation of what it looked like for him to deal with these kinds of lies in Matthew chapter 4. I'm not going to get you to go there. I'm just going to summarize and say, read it, okay? Read it. It says this, Matthew Chapter 4, he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're really the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In other words, there's something good that you don't have right now. There's something good, Jesus, that you could potentially have if you just take out and take it. And how's Jesus' answer? God's word is enough for me. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you. In other words, nothing bad's going to happen. Jesus, go ahead and jump. Nothing bad's going to come of it. God won't let anything bad happen to you. And what's Jesus say? Don't test God. Okay? Do not test him. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes scripture again. Then he takes him to a very high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he says, all these things I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, just a little question. Was there any of the kingdoms of the world that didn't already belong to Jesus? Like, he created all things. He holds them together by the word of his power. And how does Jesus respond to him? Be gone, devil. <laughs> you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil left him. Angels ministered to him. He responded in all three lies with God's word. He responded to the lie that you don't have the thing you need. 
And he basically says, no, God is what I need. His words are enough for me. Satan's telling you guys the same lie. Let me tell you something. His word, his spirit, his presence, his joy is enough. It's enough. There's not something God's withholding from you. He's not some cruel God commanding something cruel of you. He's not unkind. He's giving you himself. Second lie. Nothing bad's going to happen. How did Jesus respond? Do not put the Lord God to the test. And I want to say this with gentleness. But some of us are putting the Lord God to the test. We really like the smiley guy in the sky. But we're a little unfamiliar with the idea that he will bring about the consequences for our sins. And for those that are in Christ Jesus, in every way that we diminish this idea, you're diminishing God's mercy towards you. Now, all of us will die. And then comes the judgment. (laughs) All of us will. Now, it might feel like our consequences are delayed or invisible, but there will be consequences for sin. And if you diminish this lie, if you you receive this lie and diminish God's judgment, you, you will be indifferent towards God and the gospel. That is the natural result. It will mean nothing that Jesus Christ had to die. Lastly, When Satan tries to convince you that you need something you already have, you need to be familiar with what you already have. There's things where he's saying, look, you could be like God. God's already made you in his image. He's given you dominion and authority on this earth through his command and through his blessing. And so if we have this kind of high priest who's experienced our, he's experienced our temptations, what should we do? I have two things, and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely done. Two things. The second part of that verse that we have a high priest like this goes like this. Okay, if he's this kind of high priest, look at verse 16. It'll be on the screen. If we have this kind of high priest, then we should respond like this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy, and find grace to help in times of need. How should we respond? Draw near to Christ. And then this is the promise. Romans 16, 20, and I'm closing. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Help us to both be aware, to walk around as those who are awake, who are not indifferent, but awake to you, to the reality that we need an armor because we have an enemy. Help us today as we sing these songs about your faithfulness, I pray that we would pick up the armor and trust you and your provision for us. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.